Thank you, Tricia. Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be with you again. Um, yes, free reign this morning with a little bit of a, a nudge because um, I understand you're starting the, the front line uh, course. I'm sorry, this will probably ruin that title for you. I've got cats, and if cats have fleas, <laughs> you give them a certain course, which is called Frontline. You ever seen it? It's a little thing you put on. I tell you the time I hear it, I think of these little blue sort of strange things that you give to your cat to get rid of fleas. Anyway, um, you're looking at how to live out for the Lord in your own situation. And um, so after a few emails, I, I suggested the direction I'd like to take this morning. And Andrew, I don't think reluctantly, said, yes, that's all right. <laughs> I, um, I love Faulty Towers, the um, sitcom of another generation, really. I realize there's a, a younger generation that have missed out on the delights of, of Basil Faulty uh, et al. And there's one particular scene where uh, a certain resident of the hotel called the Major, who's a bit of a befuddled old gentleman, uh, just says to Basil Faulty one morning, why do we bother Faulty? Why do we bother? And his response was, Basil Faulty's response was, I didn't know we did, Major. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess, <laughs> not that that has been the springboard for what I want to say this morning, but I want to have a, a think this morning about motivation. Why bother? You're having a, a look uh, in your home groups, um, of living out for the Lord in the situation that God has, has placed you. But why bother? Why? Why live distinctive lives? Um, we're encouraged regularly, and this is the way I'm going to particularly speak about this morning, to share our faith, to evangelize. But why? Why, why bother to do that? Um, there's that psalm, Psalm 73, where Asaph, the writer, uh, um, looks at uh, his contemporaries and the world in which he's living. And he actually starts the psalm by saying, why bother? Why bother to live a distinctive life when those who don't know God, who pay no respect to him, who don't honor him in any way, seem to be living a life of Riley? And here am I trying to live uh, an honorable um, uh, moral life in the midst of all this. And I sometimes think, is it worth it? What's the purpose in this? So I want to have a look this morning a little bit at, at, at motivation. And of course, um, when it comes to motivation for sharing our faith, evangelism as we sometimes call it, that is uh, something that's very close to my heart because I am an evangelist and I work alongside an evangelistic organization. And I know it's very easy to instill guilt in the uh, hearts of my hearers when talking about this sort of thing. I know there's a number of ways that I can instill guilt in Christians. Uh, you learn that over a few years. Talk to blokes about uh, pornography and morality, and yes, we all hold our heads in shame. Talk to Christians generally about quiet times and the importance of a quiet time. That's a way you can get people guilty. And uh, talk to people about sharing your faith evangelism as well. That's a great way to get people guilty. So I, I'm on a guilt trip this morning. No, I'm not. Um, 
Uh, I know there's a danger in that. I don't want to do that, but I want us to look at our motivation. Why bother? Why bother? So let's turn to a scripture that we've already had part of uh, read to us this morning, um, but we're going to have a look at the context of that great verse 21. I think that verse 21 is my favorite verse in the whole of the Bible, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I just think encapsulated in there is... Such truth is, is wonderful. And I like what you said this morning. I'll be using that as a way of illustrating it a bit more when I use that evangelistically. But let's have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and we'll begin reading from verse 11. And even here, of course, we're breaking in on an argument that Paul is bringing about the whole business of the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, the gospel is described as a treasure early on and uh, he makes comparison between what God has given us now to what they had in the Old Testament. Um, but let's look at verse 11 where we read this. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God and I hope is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Amen. Firstly, um, some definitions or words of clarification. When it comes to the whole business of living distinctive lives or sharing our faith, there are lots of phrases and words that can be used and that can sometimes confuse. And people say, oh, what you mean is this, not, not that. We talk about sharing our faith or sharing the gospel. We talk about proclaiming the word. We talk about outreach. We talk about mission. We talk about evangelism. And I'm aware that Rebecca Manley Pippet, who um, wrote that book uh, years ago that was influential on a generation called Out of the Salt Shaker. I don't know if you remember that book. And Rebecca Manley Pippet is now doing a lot of work amongst universities in, in, in this country. But in that book that she wrote a few years ago when she spoke about evangelism, she said evangelism was something 
something that I didn't think I ought to do to my dog, let alone my neighbours and my friends. It was such a dirty word. Um, but sometimes when it comes to the whole business of living distinctive lives and sharing our faith, uh, there are a whole range of words and phrases that are used. In the reading that we had, Paul uses the phrase persuading others. Hmm. Not sure if we like that idea of persuading in our culture. That's something that's perhaps a no-no. He talks about the ministry of reconciliation. And each word, each phrase may have a slightly different emphasis. But the bottom line is this. That the Church of Jesus Christ, and you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, has been called to live a different life. And you have been called to proclaim a message through that lifestyle and through your lips as well. It's not a message that can only be demonstrated through lifestyle. It must be articulated at some point and put into words. We have been called to do that. That is part of the package. I remember a young lady coming uh, up to me after a, a seminar that myself and a colleague of mine, Bob Telford, did a few years ago. And uh, it was a, a, a weekend of training, equipping people in sharing their faith. And she had only become a Christian, I think, about six months before. So she was very new to Christianity. And at the end of, I think it was the sort of Saturday evening session, she came up to us and she said, do you mean to say that now I'm a Christian, I've got to tell others about Jesus? And we were sort of taken back by this question. So we just simply said, Yes. She goes, oh, all right, I'll do that then. <laughs> a wonderful response, but she didn't realize uh, up to that point that that was part of the package, actually. That you have been past something like a, uh, a, a runner in a relay race, and you've got to pass it on to somebody else. And we've been called to do that. And sometimes the vocabulary that we use can get in the way and confused. Now I'm happy, I'm not afraid to use the word evangelism, for I know what I mean by it. I'm not afraid to use the word proclamation, or even preaching. But I know that to some people, ooh, those are hard words. Um, choose your own words, but do it. Share the good news. That's what we're called to do, by our lifestyle, and through our lips as well. So don't let the vocabulary get in the way of what we're called to do. The second thing I want to say, and these are some warnings really, and I know I'm speaking to a church here, who although you haven't got the word evangelical in your church, you're not Abbey Evangelical Church, are you? You are an evangelical church. Uh, you're a Bible-based, a biblical church. But sadly, that doesn't always mean, just because a church calls itself evangelical, just because a, a church claims to be biblical, doesn't always mean that it's good in this area of living distinctive lives or sharing their faith. Evangelical doesn't automatically mean evangelistic. Evangelical is to do with what we believe. Evangelistic is what we do with what we believe. And it's possible to be evangelical as a church and not to be evangelistic. I know some good evangelical churches who are as tight as a drum and would never think of getting other people into their congregation or into their buildings in, in any way. 
don't assume that just because a church has truth, that sharing that truth will necessarily follow. And I think this is a real danger for larger churches. I belong to a fairly large church that's uh, now on a Sunday morning regularly over 300. Um, and people look around and uh, almost pat themselves on the back and go, wow, aren't we good? We're big. We've, we've got, always got space problems at the school where, where we meet. And we're thinking of uh, developing other strategies because of the numbers that we've got at our church. And it almost, I've heard people say this, why do we need to share our faith? Why are we thinking of um, being distinctive? Why are we thinking of, of reaching out to, to others? We're okay, aren't we? And complacency can creep in. And we're thoroughly evangelical and biblical. We have the truth. Um, orthodoxy and size can often lead to complacency. So it's a, a real danger. There, there has to be a genuine intentionality in wanting to share our faith and live distinctive lives. It doesn't just happen. We have got, as individuals and as a group of individuals as well, such a strong default tendency just to go back to what is ordinary, mediocre. And we have to really say, no, this is something we want to stir up amongst God's people and in my own life, to live a distinctive life and also to share our faith. And then the third thing I want to say, I want to, to be honest. Hopefully I'm always honest. Um, but let me just open a little bit of my own heart here. I said at the beginning that what we're looking at this morning, motivation for evangelism, is something that's very close to my heart. I am an evangelist. I work with an evangelistic organization. It's my job six days a week, if I have a day off, um, to share the good news or to be involved in the business somehow of sharing the good news. And so you might say, well, either you are an evangelist, it's your job, it's your profession, so that's why you talk about this, this is why perhaps you're so passionate about it, although you don't seem to get passionate about much, no, I don't. Although I got passionate on Thursday night, Friday night, when Coventry played at the Rico again, but we won't go down that road. Either <laughs> um, uh, this is something that's just natural to you, and it's not necessarily natural to us. Um, I tell you, I have that strong default position in me of wanting to shut up and to be quiet. I, I want to have an ordinary, easy life. If, if I go into a room, um, I want to sit somewhere where nobody will sit next to me. So I don't have to engage in conversation. Um, I used to regularly go down to London and uh, you know what it's like, you get on the train, you find a seat where there's nobody else sitting around, and you put your bag on the seat next to you. And why do you do that? It's because you don't want somebody to sit next to you. And I remember I went through a whole um, stage where I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put my bag up in the rack or under the seat so somebody sits next to me, so it forces me into a conversation. And hopefully somewhere I can bring the Lord into it. I may be able to speak publicly um, about the Christian faith and proclaim the good news. And you may think I'm an enthusiast for Christianity, but I'll tell you when it comes to being one-to-one, -one, um, I find that as difficult as the next person. And I find evangelism very difficult. 
it is not something that comes naturally to me. It's something I have to be intentional about. And if I just think, oh, I'll sit back and let it happen, it doesn't. I have to do something with God's help. But I take heart from what Paul says actually earlier on. Um, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, and verse 7, he says this, and I'm sure many of us can relate to this. He talks about the message that we have been given as being a treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Yeah. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, I, I must admit, there's a whole lot in what Paul is saying that I do not yet fully understand. But one thing he's saying is this. We know that at the heart of the message that we proclaim, the heart of the gospel is sacrifice, isn't it? Christ died for our sins. So sacrifice is at the heart of the message that we proclaim. But Paul is saying here is that actually sacrifice is at the heart of sharing the message as well. That sharing the good news, living those distinctive lives, living for Christ 24-7, is not easy. It involves sacrifice. Saying no to that default position that wants to take the easy life. They're saying, no, I, I will encourage somebody to sit next to me. I will encourage to go across the room, uh, encourage myself to go across the room and share something with that person or just put an arm around them or what it might be. If you, if you ever see a book or come across a series that talks about easy faith sharing or easy evangelism, don't waste your money on it. There is no such thing as easy faith sharing and easy evangelism. It always costs. So sacrifice is at the heart of our message and it's the heart of sharing the message as well. It never comes easy. So don't think that for me as a professional, oh, it's easy for you, isn't it, Ive? No, it's not. I find it hard. I find it hard. And so like Paul says in another context, he has to uh, be violent with his body and he sometimes needs to beat himself up to motivate himself in this area. I would far rather live in isolation and seclusion. I'd like to have my wife there, and, and perhaps the kids can visit every so often for a limited time. But I'd love to live my life in almost a, a monastery situation. But God hasn't called me or us to that. So why do it? In the light of what I've been saying, why bother? What can motivate us. Well, back to the main reading that we have here. Paul is writing about the ministry to which he and us has been called and gives us some reasons to live those distinctive lives to share our faith. And the first one is in that first verse I read in verse 11 where he says, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. 
A motivation is the fear of the Lord. Paul, earlier on, talks about how one day everyone, believers as well, will need to give an account of themselves in the presence of God. This is a, a picture I took a few years ago when we visited Corinth, ancient Corinth. M modern Corinth is in another place now in Greece, but ancient Corinth. And in the heart of that city, like in the heart of most Greek cities, they had a place called the Bema Seat, the Judgment Seat. And that's actually it. You can't read it on that screen very well, but that's what that says there, Bema. It's the place where disputes were sorted out. And that is the picture that Paul is painting here. And this is the very place that the Corinthians would have had in mind because it existed when Paul was writing these words. That one day, each of us, believers as well, are going to face the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we're not talking here about heaven and hell. Once you put your trust in Jesus Christ, your eternal destination is secure in heaven with him. But for each one of us, there is accountability. There is accountability, and that is what's being spoken of here. What have we done with what God has given us? And Paul says that's a motivation for him. The fear of the Lord. I'm going to have to give an account of myself to him one day. Of those opportunities I've missed and those ones I've taken and what's motivated me. And really around a fuller understanding of the nature of God, who he is and how one day we will face him, is a good motivation to share our faith. Why do I share my faith? Why do I not take that default position? It's because one day I will face my Savior and need to give an account of myself before him. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord. That is something that we've lost, I think, in recent generations. That sort of understanding of the character of God. God Almighty, as somebody said, rather than God Almighty. One day each one of us will give an account of ourselves. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. That's why we live differently. I'll have to give an account of myself. But it's not all that Paul says. Verse 14, he goes on and says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. This, in a sense, is the other side of the coin, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is a motivation, but the love of Christ is a motivation as well. And I think you can read this both ways in this passage. It's the love that Christ has for me, and because I've experienced his love, I want to share that with others. Or you can read it, well, it's the love that Christ has for others. And so I ought to show compassion to them as well. I don't mind which way you take that. The love of Christ is a tremendous motivation. Um, Maureen Green was that lady who, I think it was about 18 months ago, lost her husband to uh, an attacker on Christmas Eve. He was on his way to play the organ at a Christmas Eve service, and he was mugged and he was killed. And then just about a year later, about six months ago, 
um, the killer was uh, caught and um, went through the trial and uh, the, the wife was interviewed quite extensively by papers and the media I in general and she's a lovely Christian lady is Maureen Green and uh, they said how do you feel towards the murderer of your husband and she said those things that um, we hope Christians will say but we wonder how we would respond in those situations she said I forgive him I forgive him and, and people find that so hard to understand and, and, and I do in one sense although I know theologically that's something I should do I just wonder how I would respond in that situation and so the journalist said you forgive him how on earth can you forgive him and she said well I know as a Christian how much God has forgiven me and in the light of the forgiveness that I've experienced I must extend a similar forgiveness to that man as well and that's the sort of thing that Paul is talking about here. Because we have experienced the love of Christ. That should be a tremendous motivation for us to live distinctive lives. To share our faith. So we're motivated by the character, the holiness of God that one day will give an account in his presence. And we're motivated by the love of Christ. But there's a third motivation that Paul speaks of here. And it's really there in verse 16, where Paul says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. A common objection that I come across when talking with Christians about this whole area of sharing our faith is that people say, Yeah, I understand that I ought to, but, <coughs> excuse me, but if you knew my neighbor or my friend or my work colleague, they're really nice people. Have you ever thought like that? Well, actually, some of your non-Christian friends are nicer than many of the people who are in this room. And you almost think, why? Why have I somehow got to disturb their lives by sharing Jesus with them? Because they're nice. They're nice. Well, if we're thinking like that about our friends and our neighbours and our unsafe family members, what we're doing is exactly what Paul says we shouldn't do here. We're regarding people from a worldly point of view. It's not, got nothing to do with niceness. If you want to make people nice, give them the Daily Mail and make them join the Conservative <laughs> Party. All right. No. <laughs> it's not to do with niceness. It's to do with lostness. People are not lost. Nice people are lost and nasty people are lost. Everyone without Christ is lost. And so we've got to view people through God's eyes as lost people. And if we think, oh, they're all right, really, well then we are viewing people from a worldly point of view. Once you are alienated from God, Paul says when he was writing to some Christians in Colossae, you were enemies in your minds. That's how people are without Christ. Enemies of God. But through Christ's physical body you've now been reconciled to him. So it's the condition of men and women that can motivate us. I sometimes sit uh, outside a cafe at the bottom of a, an escalator in Leamington Spa 
in our little sort of shopping precinct called the Royal Priors. The Royal Priors, notice that. Um, and I've lived in Leamington for nearly 60 years. And I'm amazed that I can sit there for you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, and not know anybody going down this escalator. Yeah? Um, so that's one thing that always interests me when I see lots of people. But also I see lots of people think, how many of these people know the Lord? They're lost. This is a crowd of lost people. Now in one sense it can drive you mad if you start thinking like this. But at least it should motivate us a bit more. To wake us from the lethargy that sometimes we have when we see crowds of people and we just think, oh, they're all right. No. Don't regard them from a worldly point of view. So what motivates us? Well, the fear of the Lord. We're going to give an account of ourselves. The love of Christ for us and for others. And the lost condition of men and women. I'm going to finish by looking at a, a video that I know has done the rounds, and it may have done the Abbey rounds, so you may have seen it. Um, but what it does for me, when I first saw this, and it's probably about six or seven years ago when I first saw a version of, of this video, is that it actually does something here rather than here. And I know what I've been saying about motivation can perhaps be a bit cerebral, all right? Getting you to think through the logic of this. This is what the Bible says, so think about this. But sometimes God needs to attack us, as it were, in our hearts as well. And when I first saw this, at the end of it, I thought, yes, that's what motivates me. And it encapsulates some of the things that we've been seeing. Um, so let's see this uh, video called God of the Moon and Stars. Are we okay, Barney? Right. <clears throat> God of the unborn. 
and pray together. Father, we sometimes sing that the gospel, your gospel, O Lord, is the hope for our nation. And you have placed this gospel in jars of clay. We still feel so fragile and ill-equipped for this business of being your people in this world, in the culture in which you have placed us. But you haven't made a mistake, Lord. This is something deliberate that you have done. And so we come to you and we just say, Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to be usable people. In the activities that go on from this church here, in our day-to-day lives, Help us, Lord, to be those who live out and speak out the good news, we pray. Yes, Lord. So help us to this end. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.